Grace and peace be with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, as we continue our series in the Gospel of John. The title of the sermon is Incorrect in Your Worship Order. Bo and I uh, found many typos this week as we were sort of wheels off in our preparations for uh, this day. Uh, the title should be something like Pitching Tents and Throwing Fits, and that will make more sense in just a moment if you need a title for a sermon. Our sermon text for today is John 7, 1 through 31. You can find it in your copy of the Bible or in your worship order. And once you are there, if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand and pay close attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. God's Word reads, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brother believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not if he keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, 
and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. may be seated. Like many of you, I had a chance to gather with family over this holiday weekend. And one of my aunts told me a story that a preacher had told her. And she said to me, you should open your next sermon with this story. And I will tell you what I told her about that. I don't have the comedic timing to tell a story like that. <laughs> I will tell you at some point what it is, but not today. I want to pick up where we left off last week. Jesus had set forth a hard teaching at the synagogue, and many of his followers turned away from him and followed him no more. He even asked the twelve disciples if they wanted to go away from him, but they decided to stay and confess that Jesus is the Holy One of God who spoke the words of eternal life. Well, after these things happen, John tell us, tells us that Jesus' life got really complicated. He spent a lot of time in remote places, away from the suburbs and the big city. Ever since he healed that man on the Sabbath day all those weeks ago, some of the Jewish authorities were looking for a way to kill him. And so Jesus wisely steered clear of those hot spots. Trouble was brewing for Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. But it was also brewing for him at home. His younger brothers were picking on him for doing his ministry in secret out of the public eye. They were poking and prodding him, wanting him to go up to Jerusalem and openly publicize his ministry. Not because they believed in him, not because they wanted to promote him. They wanted him to go up there because they probably wanted to get rid of him. He was probably bringing trouble on them at home and making life difficult for them. They were having to answer too many questions in the marketplace. Who is your brother and who does he think he is and what is he trying to do? So maybe they were thinking, if he goes to Jerusalem, at least he won't be here. And if he goes to Jerusalem, perhaps he'll be exposed as the fraud we think he is. So of course, they're trying to nudge him along. There's no better time than the festival of tabernacles to go and make yourself known, Jesus. Just think of all the people who are going to be there. High concentrations of people from all over the nation will be in Jerusalem. But Jesus was wise enough to not take the bait. He declined to go with them. He declined to go and make a big show of his coming at the festival of tabernacles. And once again, we see in Jesus a man who is not a pastorpreneur. He is not a church growth guru. He's not a marketeer. We see in Jesus a man who is simply on mission to do the will of his Father in his Father's time. Now, according to the experts, Jesus' method of doing gospel ministry was totally wrong and completely ineffective. And yet, here we are, gathered in the name of Jesus, 2,100 years after the fact. Now, why is that? 
It's because of what Jesus has been saying through the Gospel of John. The Spirit is the life giver. The flesh gains nothing. The flesh helps nothing. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus' younger brothers, obviously motivated by the flesh, were trying to send him out to publicize himself, no matter the consequences. And yet Jesus, driven by the Holy Spirit, bides his time and does things according to the will of his Father. Now, Jesus did eventually go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, but the reason he did it was not because his brothers made him feel bad or because he wanted to show them up. Jesus went up to the Feast of Tabernacles for the same reason that other men were going up to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's because the Word of God required it. He waits until his brothers are gone. He goes up secretly without fanfare. He goes up stealthily because people all over the place are looking to kill him. So he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. But he does want to obey God's law. The Feast of Tabernacles is a very big deal, and we're not going to get into it this week. We'll look at it more in detail next week. But suffice it to say for now that this festival is something that commemorated the forefathers' sojourning through the wilderness when they left Egypt. It was in that time that they lived in tents, and they lived in little shacks or shelters that they would make in the wilderness, out in the desert. And so God commanded them to celebrate a festival every year to commemorate that. But it was also to remind the people that God himself dwelled in a tent among his people. Something that is so easily forgotten. I don't know if you know this or not, but to this day, the festival of tabernacles is still celebrated around the world. Devout Jews will build shelters on their patios or balconies or in their yards and they are complete with leafy branches on the top. The Feast of Tabernacles points to something true, something gracious, something beautiful that's so easy to forget when you're just caught up in the festivities. Now we know something that our Jewish forefathers did not know. We know that in light of the gospel, the Feast of Tabernacles also points forward to God in the flesh. Not just backward to God living in a tent, but forward to God in the flesh dwelling among his people. The word for booths that appears in your English translation comes from the Greek word that means dwellings or shelters or tabernacles. Sometimes it's just translated as tent. It's the noun form of the verb that's used to describe Jesus, the Word made flesh, when He dwelled among us. In John 1, He is said to dwell among us, and that word is basically tabernacled among us. As readers and hearers of this story, we know something that the Jews did not know. And that is that we know that Jesus is the God-man who pitched His tent among us. That Jesus is the true and better tabernacle who sojourns with us in the wasteland of the world full of grace and truth. The divine incarnate word actually tabernacles, tents among those who keep the feast of tabernacles. So on that day when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, not only are the people reenacting their forefathers living in tents, but Jesus comes reenacting God dwelling in a tabernacle. But now it's God-man in the flesh at the temple.
And we read a text like this, and it's easy to blow past some of the words, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to slow down and read. We learn here that Jesus went up to the feast secretly because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's a bounty on his head. He's a wanted man. It's dangerous for Jesus to travel through Judea and to go up to Jerusalem. And yet, here he is in the story making his way through dangerous places to go up to the festival in obedience to God's law. As it is written in Deuteronomy, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord that your God gives you. Now this is a prime example. In Jesus we have a prime example of what some people call the dangerous duty of delight. If anyone has ever had a reason to skip church, it was Jesus. If anyone ever had a reason to stay away from the temple, it was Jesus. And yet in this story we see that nothing could keep him from going up to worship God. Not nitpicking family members, not even death threats, not even a great distance to travel. Now you might meditate on that the next time you feel too puny or too tired or too busy to gather for worship. You might remember that the Word made flesh made the worship of God in spirit and truth priority one. The Jews are looking for Jesus at the feast. Some are saying, where is he? Now, obviously, some want to know where he is because they want to kill him. Others want to know where he is because maybe they want to crown him as king. And maybe there's some, something in between there. Some people are saying he's a good man. Other people are saying, no, he's a troublemaker. He's leading people astray. So whatever you think about Jesus, like it or not, you see in this story, Jesus has become a controversial figure, a polarizing figure among his own people. Public opinion is divided over him, but everyone had an opinion about him. Some people love him, some people hate him, some people are bothered by him, some people are confused about him, but no one was indifferent or neutral about Jesus. And on that point, nothing has changed in 2,100 years. Everyone who ever thinks about Jesus has a thought or feeling about him. Everyone has to deal with him at some level. In this story, unlike Moses who came with the law, Jesus shows up full of grace and truth. And yet more than anyone who has ever lived, Jesus shows up comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. That's why he's a polarizing figure. And that's why the people in the story are muttering about him. Now, I don't know why they put the word mutter in here. None of us use that word. They're mumbling, they're grumbling, they're whispering about him. This is the same word that we've used in John 6, just a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus told the people, stop grumbling, stop complaining. Same word. The point is this, that God's people at Jerusalem are acting just like their forefathers in the wilderness. So not only are they living in booths and tents and shelters, but they're also grumbling about the Lord just like their forefathers. You could say that they are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in a truer and better way than they even expected or attempted. Now a couple of weeks ago I said they must have forgotten that 
God has a zero tolerance policy towards grumbling and complaining. There is nothing that stirs God to anger quite like grumbling. And the reason for that is because grumbling usually comes from an ungrateful, discontent, covetous, unbelieving heart. And here you have the people reenacting their story in more ways than one, perhaps in ways they did not even intend. We said it to you once, we've said it to you a thousand times, and that is that story shapes life. And here we see that life also shows the story that's shaping your life. And so that's what's happening with these folks. In the midst of the controversy, Jesus shows up not only in Jerusalem, but at the temple. Now, he knows full well that at least some of the Jews are seeking to kill him. This is the third time in John that Jesus has gone up to the temple. The first time he went, remember, he drove out the money changers and their livestock, and he caused quite a stir. But not even that bothered the people as much as the second time he went to the temple, and that's when he spoke to a man he had just healed at the house of mercy. He gave his legs back to him, happened to be the Sabbath day, Man carrying his back to the temple, Jesus encourages him to go and sin no more, lest something worse happen. That's what bothered everyone. And now he shows up the third time, this time to teach and preach at the temple. Now we're not told what he was teaching and preaching, we're just told that he was there, teaching and preaching. And that his preaching caught the attention of the people. But notice why it caught their attention. They weren't astounded by the content of what he said necessarily, so much as they were surprised by the fact that this man who had no seminary training was preaching and teaching the way he was. And so they're like, how can he do this? How can he teach and preach like that when he doesn't have his letters? He doesn't have letters. He doesn't have his learning. Where did he study? Now, I do want to get on a soapbox here for just a moment, so those of you who don't like soapboxes, can check out and I'll call you back in just a minute, okay? But here's my soapbox. <clears throat> Two things. First of all, Jesus was an intelligent, well-educated man, and even his critics acknowledged it. Jesus was not an anti-intellectual who saw no need for all that good learning. He loved God with all of his heart and all of his mind. The second thing is that just because Jesus did not study his letters at seminary, it doesn't mean that we want to be ministers and missionaries don't have to get a solid theological education or that we don't need all that good learning. Anyone who feels called to the ministry of the word ought to submit themselves to formal training that they may learn to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength the glory of God and the good of others. And so I just want to say there's no place for anti-intellectualism among the people of God, especially among ministers of the Word. This only applies to everyone who is not the Son of God. So, keep that in mind. Now let's get back to our story. Jesus makes it clear here that His teaching is not His own. In other words, it does not originate from within him. He's not speaking out of his head or just saying everything that happens to be on his heart. He's teaching what the Father gives him to teach. His doctrine originates in the Father. Now, how can anyone know if Jesus' teaching is from the Father or not? Jesus says, well, on the one hand, if you want 
to do the will of God, you will know the truth by connecting both knowing and doing. Knowing without doing is ignorance. Doing without knowing is also ignorance. But knowing and doing together is truly knowing. That's true knowledge. Those who want to do the will of God will know the truth. How? By paying close attention to the motivations of the messenger, in this case, Jesus. So Jesus says, those who speak from themselves seek glory for themselves, but the one who speaks for another, for God, speaks for the glory of God. And this is why the world is full of televangelists and prosperity pastors and name-branded ministries and other kinds of hucksters and heretics. There are many messengers in the world who are seeking glory for themselves, speaking whatever pops into their heads, whatever they dream or feel. And yet Jesus says, I'm not that kind of messenger. The one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and there is no error in him. Again, Jesus is not out to make a name for himself. He's not motivated by money or power, but only by his love for the Father. He's seeking the glory of the Father alone, not his own glory at all. No one, no one else who has ever lived in the history of the world, ever lived by the principle, soli deo gloria, the way Jesus did. So part of seeking the Father's glory meant defending the Father's law and confronting people with their sin. And that's what Jesus does. He goes right at these guys. Has it Moses giving you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now the people all knew the law. But like us, they only kept some of the law some of the time. No one ever kept it totally and perfectly. One of the laws that Jesus puts in front of them to show that they're not keeping the law is this. He asked, why do you seek to kill me? That's another way of saying, why are you trying to break the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. The crowd says, you have a demon. I mean, they think he's crazy. Who's seeking to kill you? That means that some of the crowd are in denial, but others actually don't know that people are trying to kill Jesus. Jesus knew that there were enough of them who wanted to kill him, that he was justified in leveling this charge against them. Now, something that can get lost in the shuffle of this story is this. The courage of Jesus and the cowardice of his enemies. Think about that. Jesus knew full well that some of the Jews were seeking to kill him, and still he went through Judea, still he went up to Jerusalem, and still he went into the temple, and he spoke openly in the sight of God and man. So like the prophets before him, Jesus is a man who lives and dies by the courage of his convictions. I don't want you to miss what's happening here. In this story, God is pitching a tent among the crowds, and the crowds are throwing a fit. God is drawing near to his people, as near as he can get to them, and yet they are drawing away from him. He draws near to them to give them life, and yet they are seeking to give him death. Why do they want to kill him? It all goes back to the time Jesus was at the temple where he had healed a man, and 
invalid of 38 years, and it just so happened to be the Sabbath day. If you flash back to that, that occasion, you see at first they only want to persecute Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, even though he's doing works of mercy. And he's encouraging the man he healed to break the Sabbath by doing works of necessity. But then they take it up a notch and they realize that Jesus is actually claiming to work on the Sabbath as his father does. And they get really upset because now he is claiming to be equal with God. And he's now made himself a blasphemer. This is why they've been so angry with him all this time. They want to kill him because he broke the Sabbath and he's a blasphemer. Neither, neither thing was true. They're not making a right judgment, but that's the way they judge the case. Now, Jesus knew that both the Sabbath and circumcision were ordinances that were given by God to bless his people. And both of these ordinances were merciful and gracious gifts from God. Jesus is not pitting one against the other in this argument. He's simply saying that you've got to think about things in the right way. So his point is that if you give a lame man his legs back on the Sabbath, that is far better and far more merciful than cutting off a piece of flesh from a baby boy's private parts on the Sabbath day. One grants healing and relief, the other inflicts pain and causes an injury, a wound. Now the Jews are angry with Jesus and they want to kill him because they can't judge things the right way. They can't think clearly about things. And yet Jesus wants them to do so. I want to say that we are probably more like them than we realize or want to confess. Because we are so easily impressed with the way things look or seem to us. But I remind you that looks can be deceiving and even deadly. As Frodo Baggins observed on one occasion, sometimes the friend of an enemy looks fairer, yet feels fouler. For example, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs, uh, Solomon describes wisdom and folly as two ladies who call out to men. Lady Wisdom is a homemaker. She's built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She's set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the high places in town. Whoever's sinful, let them turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of inside. But then there's this other lady, Mistress Folly, and she's more like a porn star. She is loud and brash. She's seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the high place of town. She calls to those who pass by, who are arguing straight on their way. Whoever is sinful, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he doesn't know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Why do I tell you that story? To remind you that looks can be deceiving and deadly. To remind you of what Jesus says. We need to judge rightly. Make right judgments and not judge by appearances. Sometimes the homemaker is not as attractive as the other person. 
and yet you've got to judge rightly. I'll give you another example. One of the prophets described a pagan king, and he said he was very much like the servant of Eden. He says this of him. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. That's a description of a serpent in Eden. But another prophet describes the one true king. He was like a suffering servant in this way. He says he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When Jesus says, stop judging by appearances and make right judgments, he's not just talking about, he's not just giving a general principle, he's actually talking about the way we think of him. Don't judge Jesus by appearances. Don't judge Jesus, Jesus by the appearance of his people. Don't judge Jesus by the surface of things. Dig deep and see who he really is. See, he's inviting us to judge him, to evaluate his claims, to assess his works. But he requires us to do it rightly, not wrongly. So how can we judge Jesus by appearances? Or how can we stop judging him by appearances and start judging him with right judgment? Let me give you three ways to do this. The first one is we need to learn to base our judgments on substance, not on appearance. You cannot rightly judge a book, or a person, or a thing, or a teaching, or an act by its cover. You have to dig deep and get to know Jesus before you can form an accurate opinion of Him. Second, we must base our judgments on sound reasoning, not on intuitional vibes and mystical goosebumps or emotional overreactions. Nothing at all against feelings. They are God-given. But let me remind you that you cannot determine whether Jesus is true or false, right or wrong, good or bad, just by the way you feel about Him. Nor can you do it by the way He makes you feel. And third, we must base our judgments on the truth. Not on old traditions or new trends. This requires us to be deeply humble, quick to listen, slow to get angry. None of us knows Jesus as we ought to know him. And we might even be wrong about some things that we feel certain that we do know about him. But I don't want you to be discouraged by that. I want you to know that it takes a lifetime to get to know Jesus truly. But it takes an eternal lifetime to get to know him fully. And that brings us to the last point of the day. The response of the crowd is this. Total and utter confusion. 
Unlike all of you who understand things in a crystal clear way at this moment, the crowd was totally confused about Jesus. The courage of Jesus stands out in stark contrast to the cowardice of the Jews. And that left the people totally confused and mystified about their leaders, about themselves, and about Jesus. Now we'll dig into all of that some more next week, but I don't want you to miss what's happening here in the midst of all of that confusion. What the people are missing is that God has come, and He's pitched a tent among His people, and they're throwing a fit about it. Because now God is too close, He's too near, He's making my life miserable. Things are very scary and strange. He's drawing near, they're backing away. He comes full of grace and truth, but they insist on more law. He's coming to bring life. They want to bring death. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He has come to show and tell His people who God is and what God is like and what God intends to do with them. He wants us to know what we must believe concerning God and how we must walk before the face of God. And yet, like many of those people, we are confused. We're not quite sure what to think about Jesus. Well, it's my hope and prayer that today, in some way, you have come face to face with Jesus in this story. And you might feel confused about Jesus at this moment. You might even feel convicted by Jesus in some way at this moment. But either way, it is my hope and prayer that you see Jesus' glory as a man of courage, as a man of conviction, and even as a man of compassion. And I'll you find comfort in him. More importantly, it is my prayer that you see Jesus' grace. His grace as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you see His grace and His glory today, it's my hope and prayer that you will turn from yourself and trust in Him even now. And the promise is that someday, you will hear a loud voice from the throne of grace saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, Behold, I am making all things new. Let us pray again. Hear, O God, our cry and listen to our prayer. From the end of the earth we call to you when our heart is faint. Lead us to the rock that is higher than us, for you have been our refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let us dwell in your tent forever. Let us take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard our baptismal vows. You have given us the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the King of Kings. May his years endure to all generations. 
May he be enthroned forever before God, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. And so we will ever sing praises to your name as we perform our vows before your face day after day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.